everyone let's get underway this evening we're continuing in our study of first John we're jumping right into it tonight so it's a it's a little bit of a Pandora's box as I got into my study this week I was like oh boy we could spend just one night on verse 5 alone. And then I got to verse 6. And I was like, oh, we could spend a whole night on verse 6. So obviously we don't have time for that necessarily unless everybody wants to be here until midnight, which I doubt. Um, so we will uh, get through as much material as we can tonight. Um, I, I forewarn you uh, in fairness that I, I may get a little preachy. We'll see what happens. But uh, there's a lot of powerful, powerful stuff in these, uh, in these five or six verses um, as we go through it tonight. So, that being said, take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. 1 John 1 is a short chapter. It's only 10 verses long. And really, it serves as a two-part introduction to the entire letter. You have sort of the theological introduction, the doctrinal introduction in verses 1 through 4, which we looked at last week. And then in verses 5 through 10, you have what we might call the ethical introduction. And so we can think about doctrine as teaching or the things that we need to be thinking, right thinking is is doctrine and then ethics is concerning the the practical things right behavior so you have doctrine right thinking ethics right behavior and so what john is doing tonight in verses 5 through 10 is he's having already introduced us to the doctrine he is now introducing us to the ethics what is john's practical approach to the christian life in light of the doctrine and what we're going to see is john actually weds doctrine to ethics, the abstract to the applicatory, if you will, the, the things that you think to the things that you do and the things that you know about God and the things that you do in light of the things that you know, they are inextricably connected. And sometimes people think, well, you know, either I'm a, I'm a heady Christian and I do a lot of thinking about abstract theological concepts or over here, I'm a practical Christian. And I only just, I just walk and I just live the Christian life. And what John is saying is you have to be both. You cannot bifurcate, you cannot separate the theological concerns of the Christian life from the practical concerns of the Christian life. And it is here in these opening 
verses, these 10 verses that John opens the door to theological and practical themes that he will deal with throughout the rest of his letter. Things like the unity of essence between Father and the Son, participation in the divine life according to union with Christ, the manifestation of life through the incarnation of Christ and the hope of the resurrection, just to name a few things in those first four verses. Now in verses 5 through 10, John opens the door to his ethical themes, which could be summarized really quite simply in verse 7, walking in the light. That's, you want to summarize the ethics of 1 John, it's that statement, walk in the light. Now, obviously, we're going to deal with that in an introductory sense right now. And as we move through the rest of the four remaining chapters of 1 John, what we will find is that John returns again and again and again to this notion of walking in the light. And he connects the three L words, the three great L words of the Christian experience, light, life, and love, and all three of those are inextricably, inseparably connected for John. So really what John is doing then in verses 5 through 10 is he is concerning himself with the ethical implications of divine light for the life of the Christian, and further concerning himself with how those implications help us draw distinctions. And this is something that you'll see throughout the book of 1 John. And this is why we have titled this series Authentic Christianity as opposed to Inauthentic or Fake Christianity. What helps Christians, or just anybody in general, discern the difference between what I would call a professor and a confessor? A professor being someone who just simply talks about knowing God, talks about being a Christian, and a confessor being someone who walks, someone who is a legitimate Christian. Fake Christian versus real Christian, and that is one of John's primary concerns in this letter, and so that is why I have titled our lesson tonight, Walk versus Talk, and that is John's central concept here in these verses. How do we differentiate between someone who merely talks like a Christian and someone who walks as a Christian. John is burdened in this letter to help his readers understand legitimate, authentic, real Christianity, both doctrinally and ethically. And he establishes those ethical themes here in these verses. If we can get our heads wrapped around verses 5 through 10, we will have the key that helps us unlock the rest of the practical teaching of 1 John. These verses are critically important, not only if we want to understand 1 John, but if we want to walk in the light. So we've got two levels of purpose tonight. Purpose one is just to understand so that we can understand the rest of John's writing in this letter. That's level one. But the higher level is let's figure out together as a body, what does it mean for us to walk in the light? What does that look like? How do we apply that in our lives? So, with that being said, can I have someone read aloud for us tonight? First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. You can just start reading whenever you are 
ready, whoever wants to do that. So reads the word of the one true and living God. Father, grant us light. You are light, and so we pray that you would illumine your word to us tonight. Send your spirit. We trust that your spirit is here to enlighten and illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we can see with clarity the truth that you have for us in this text. Grant us this in Christ, we pray now. Amen. Amen. Basic two-point outline tonight, the content of the message, verse 5, the implications of the message, verses 6 through 10. John has talked about this message from the very beginning. What does he say? It was it was in the beginning, he, they heard it, they saw it, they beheld it, they touched it with their hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, we've seen him bear witness, we were proclaimed to you eternal life. What we have seen, all of these things, the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard, we proclaim to you and we proclaim to you for really a twofold purpose so that you may have fellowship with us, that is the apostles, and then secondly that through the fellowship with the apostles, the fellowship of the true church, that they would then also have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. That's purpose number one. Fellowship, purpose number two, is joy, that our joy might be made complete as these Christians, this church grows up in the grace and knowledge of the Word, the Word of life. And so John talks a lot about proclamation, that, that, that these things have been proclaimed and been taught and been preached, but he doesn't really define the message in verses 1 through 4. He gets to verse 5, and he defines it. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. Somebody look at their Bible and tell me, what is the message that John heard and is now declaring? God is light, and in him is no God is light. And not only does John, John does not see fit to just simply stop and say, God is light. Though that would certainly suffice. That is true. That is an absolute statement. God is light. But what John is labored to do here, and what he will continue to labor to do in the rest of the book, is actually out of that second part, the negation. Not only is God light, but he is also the complete and utter absence.
absence of darkness. What does the old hymn say? There is no what of turning with thee? No shadow. Not even a shadow with God. And so this concept, this theme, this doctrine of what we might call divine light, the lightness or brightness of God is central in John's mind. So central, in fact, that he doesn't even feel it necessary to really expound on this notion that God is light. He simply says, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. This is the message. This is the content of the message. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. And then he moves on. Ron. So, in the beginning, before God created anything, since God is light and there is no darkness in him, darkness has never existed until... Until there was a time that uh, the darkness had to be separated from the light. And I guess also where God, uh, where there is darkness, I, I, I think that God doesn't dwell. For instance, when he casts uh, devils into, or sinners into outer darkness, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, that's because God is not present with them to mm -hmm. give them light. And mm -hmm. when people are walking in this world, their minds darkened and there's no light in them, it's because God is not dwelling in them. Mm -hmm. You see, we receive the light because we've received Him and, and we receive light. But now I see that when it talks about people walking in darkness, it's because God is present, but He is not dwelling in them mm -hmm. because he, he is the light. And yeah. in the book of Revelation, we're going to find out that they don't need light because God Himself and Jesus will be the light, you see. Yeah. And there's, and that's, it's so important because that's where, that's exactly where John is going, is he's going to forge this link between the light of God and the light of the Christian. And that's, and that's where it starts because you know, John's, again, primary concern in these verses is not doctrine. He only spends one verse dealing with doctrine. The rest of it is talking about how one, how do we discern between true Christians and false Christians and then how do true Christians actually live in direct connection out of this truth that God is light? So <clears throat> let's then get into this idea that God is... Do you have something, Johnny? Yeah, do you have something you wanted to share? Yes. Yeah, go for it. So uh, regarding the verse 5 to uh -huh. 7, uh -huh. there's a reference to, for these three verses... In Matthew 11 and 12. Uh-huh. And he says, And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what Ron is referencing. Five to seven. Mm -hmm. In that place there shall be weeping and gashing of teeth. Mm -hmm. So there now you hear exactly where John is getting what it is that he's talking about. Because as we've already seen, right, everything that John says is so grounded and so attached to the teaching of Christ. He can't get away from it. And so this notion of the the divide between light and darkness and anything that is not God, that is outside of God, 
being cast into outer darkness is central for John. And it's, it ought to be central for us because there's so many implications that come out of that, both for now and when we think about eternity. So let's get into the text of 1 John 5 and let's see what's going on here. Now, we want to understand verses 5 through 10. We have to understand that from verse 3 that John is telling us that the message that he is declaring is a message that draws distinctions. It is a message that separates the wheat from the tares and the sheep from the goats. The message he is proclaiming is what we might call, and we call that this, we, we, we talk about this in, in you know, maybe church leadership circles or theological circles, but the, the idea of a test of fellowship, right? Can we have fellowship with someone else? How do we answer that question? And John helps us answer that question here as it relates to God being light. Essentially what John is saying is that the truth that God is light is central to helping Christians and the church at large determine who is saved, who is in fellowship with God, and who is not. And that's what we see there in verse 3, that he is writing so that this church may have fellowship with one another and with God. And the implication is that there are people who are outside of that fellowship. And so John is concerned to help us understand who's who. So, John's emphasis in these verses is on the distinctive categories that separate those who profess Christ in word only and those who confess Christ by their actions and deeds. The dividing line between these two groups is the message itself, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So what John is doing, as I mentioned, is anchoring his ethics in his doctrine. He is tying what you do with what you believe, with what you affirm, and on a larger sense, he's tying what you do with who God is is there's some important things to be said here in light of that we need to understand that john and indeed every biblical author inevitably attaches their ethics to their theology and they do so in such a way that the two are inseparable many christians over the last 50 years or so have divested themselves completely of a serious study of theology this is intentional and they have done this in favor of a practical Christianity that meets people where they're at. I put that in quotes intentionally. This is a version of Christianity that's primarily concerned with what the Christian is supposed to do rather than how the Christian is supposed to think. It's a Christian, it's a, it's a version of Christianity that is concerned primarily with people. What people do, who people are. What's in this for me? What does this text mean to me? Rather than what John's focus is, which is let's start with who God is. True Christianity has to start there. You can't ever get into who am I? What does this have to do with me? What does this mean to me? Without first answering, what does this text tell me about who God is? What God has done? And what he has said to me. 
This type of Christianity has removed God from the center of the scriptures and placed man there. They go to the Bible for direction on how to live their life rather than, and and certainly, don't hear me wrong, you can absolutely go to the Bible to get direction for your life. In fact, that is the first and primary and in many cases only place you should go to for direction for your life. But the primary thing that we ought to be doing when we come to the scriptures is not looking for direction on how to live my life, but seeking an encounter with the thrice holy God. And that's what John is saying here. Before you ever get to what do I do, you have to get to who God is. You have to encounter him in the glory of his majesty. And the two then can never be separated. Because then what, what happens? Think about it in the most stark picture you possibly get in the Bible. The best picture that's painted of this ever. Isaiah 6. What what does Isaiah do? What happens to him? He beholds the glory of God in the temple, and it's a glory that that permeates outside the temple. I mean, there's earthquakes, and there's smoke, and there's fire, and there's all these things. And the whole earth is filled with this glory, and there's myriads upon myriads, and legions and legions of angels. And what are they crying? Holy, holy, holy. And what does Isaiah do? He looks upon the Lord, the thrice holy God, and all of his majesty, all of his glory. He falls on his face. He worships, he confesses his sin, he repents, and then what does he do? He stands up, after the Lord sort of asks this hypothetical question, who will go for me? And what does Isaiah do? After he's been flattened by the glory of God, he stands up and he says, here I am, send me. What a great picture of this. Before Isaiah is ever able, equipped, ready in any sense to go be the mouthpiece of God to the nation of Israel and to the whole world, because we know that Isaiah preaches just as much to the watching nations as he does to Israel. A prophet of God is only prepared to do real, practical good for God after he has encountered God in his glory and in his majesty. For John then here, if a Christian is to walk in the light, If a Christian is to go like Isaiah, you must first encounter God in his majesty and in his glory. And you must understand who he is and you must bask in that richness of who God is. And only then can you walk in the light. Let's put this as simply as possible. If you want to walk in the light, you cannot do that until you first see the light, bask in the light, and absorb that light into you. And the only way to do that is not by going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Who ran around going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Martha, what did Mary do? Who knows the story? What did she do with Jesus? Well, Martha was running around trying to prepare all the food and do all this stuff. Wash the feet of um, Jesus. She didn't even wash the feet. That was still doing stuff. What did she do? She sat at the feet of Jesus. What did she do? She basked in the glory of Christ before ever going and running around and doing stuff. And what did Jesus say about the two sisters? What did Mary choose? She chose the better part. The better part. That's what John is telling us. We got to understand that God is light before we ever start walking in the light. Our practical concerns must always serve our doctrinal concerns and the subtle miracle of the ordering of emphasis here 
is that the Christian who is focused fully on the nature, character, and essence of God will inevitably demonstrate a thorough and robust commitment to the practical concerns of their day. Think about the Christians who have accomplished the most good in a Christian in the, in the, in the history of the church. A guy like William Wilberforce always comes to mind. William Wilberforce, he was a guy in English Parliament who almost single-handedly abolished the Atlantic slave trade. And he wasn't just some guy. He was a serious, Bible-believing, light-walking, glory-basking Christian who is discipled and mentored by none other than the famous John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and five volumes worth of robust doctrinal works. William Wilberforce was able to accomplish great good in this world. Not because he was super focused on going out and doing good, but because he was focused on God. It has been famously advised, first by Oliver Wendell Holmes and then later by Johnny Cash, to not be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. I think that's a dangerous piece of advice. Why? Because the scriptures and the witness of church history is clear. Those who are most heavenly minded demonstrate themselves to be of the most earthly good. C.S. Lewis said that a study of history will show you that those Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. If we set our minds on the things above, we will find that we have a tempered and balanced motivation for the good of the things below. The word to us tonight, then, is this. If we want to be counted among those who walk in the light, we must be fervently committed to gazing upon the God who is light. Only when we are fully, completely absorbed in his light can we be equipped to walk in it. So, Having said all that, let's consider briefly what it means that God is light. This is a study unto itself, and you could spend hours and hours and tomes upon tomes writing and reflecting upon the reality that God is light. And certainly, those hours and those pages have been devoted to it. In fact, John Stott said this, of the statements about the essential being of God, none is more comprehensive than this. God is light. If you want to capture, if it were possible, it's not, but if it were possible to capture God in three words, it might just be these. God is light. We don't have time to get into all of it, but I just want to make three brief observations regarding this phrase, God is light. What is John saying when he says that God is light? First, he's saying that God is a simple God. He's speaking about the simplicity of God. Now, I don't mean that God is simple-minded or basic. That's not what simplicity means in theological terms. We've actually talked about this doctrine a couple of times before, and it's one of my favorite doctrines. Simplicity 
simply means that, pun intended, God, maybe not intended, who knows. Simplicity essentially and simply means that God is not made up of parts that total a sum and make him who he is. God is not part light and part love and part justice and part holy. No, he is light, as we'll see later. He is love, as we see in Isaiah. He is holy. God simply is. And where does God affirm this for us? When he declares his covenant name to Moses, which is, I am that I am. There's two doctrines bound up in that. Simplicity is the one, aseity is the other. Aseity meaning that God is not dependent on anything. He's completely independent. If God is, when he says, I am that I am, it follows that he is all of his perfections. Jesus says in John 4 that God is spirit. We've seen that God is holy. We've seen that he is love. And at this point, we hear that God is light. There is more to be said about this doctrine of simplicity, especially as it connects to God's essential lightness. However, for now, we need to understand that for John to affirm God is light, he is affirming that God is absolutely unchangeable, unchangeably and essentially light. God is the source. God is the standard of light. It's number one statement about simplicity. He's also making, second, a statement about the revelation of God. John Stott again. It is in God's nature to reveal himself as it is the property of light to shine. And the revelation is of perfect purity and unutterable majesty. We are to think of God as a personal being, infinite in all his perfections, transcendent, the high and lofty one, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, yet he who desires to be known and has revealed himself. John tells us that God is light to demonstrate that we can know him. If something is shrouded in darkness and is therefore invisible, What do you know about that thing? Nothing. You don't even know that it exists if it's shrouded in darkness. Knowledge and darkness are mutually exclusive. You can't have the two together. Think about it this way. Those of you, and I hope that it's every single one of you, who read your Bibles, maybe you're like me and you read your Bible in the early morning before the sun has come up, What good would it do me to read my Bible without the lights being turned on? I can't know anything if I am sitting in the dark. So for God then to be light means that his light is inextricably connected with knowledge and with revelation and with truth. If you are to know something, you can only know it if light has shined on it and shown you what it really is. And that's why the psalmist can say, in your light we see light. Ron. And also in the psalmist uh, 119, 130, 
the entrance of uh, your word giveth light. Mm -hmm. And over in Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word is a Lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yes. The word, the word and light inextricably connected because for us, the word is the source of light. Lights our path. Lights our feet. So, if darkness and something that is shrouded in darkness cannot possibly be known or understood or comprehended... Conversely, if God is light, then fundamentally he is knowledge, he is truth, and he is, if God is light, that means he is not shrouded in darkness. And if God is not shrouded in darkness, then he can be known. And that's critical for John, for us to understand that God can be known, that God has revealed himself to us. So, John is telling us that God is simple. He's telling us that God has revealed himself to us, that he is knowable. And then number three, by telling us that God is light, John is making a statement to us about the moral purity of God, the moral perfection of God. Can't get away from John Stott tonight, and I would highly recommend that you go pick up his Tyndale New Testament commentary on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It is a goldmine of pithy theological statements that get you excited about the text of 1 John. Here he is again. And if God is also light in the sense of possessing an absolute moral perfection, their claim to know him and to have fellowship with him despite their indifference to morality is seen to be sheer nonsense. He's dipping into verse 6 there. John tells us that God is light to demonstrate that he is perfect and holy. There are no shadows. There are no dark areas with God. He is morally pure and holy. So that's kind of the theological approach to God as light. But maybe we should paint some pictures to help us get our minds further wrapped around this notion. Where might we begin? Who knows off the top of their head Genesis 1-3, the first words out of God's mouth, and thereby the first thing that he creates. Let there be light. Spirit of God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out, without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And then what happened? A little a little flicker, right? A power surge. Oh, man. No. Light. T. Desmond Alexander connects this first act of creation to God's revelation of himself as the light is called forth. And what does it do? It banishes confusion and establishes order, as we said. Try walking around anywhere in the dark with no light. What happens? You fall over, you trip, you stumble. What ends up happening? You get disoriented and you get confused. Where if you're in the middle of the ocean and you can't find the shore and the ship is being tossed, what do you look for? Maybe you're a ship captain in the 1800s or something. What are you looking for on the shore? 
the lighthouse. You're lost, you're tossed, you're confused, you're turned around. And then what brings order to the chaos as you're out on the high seas? The light. Davis. Speaking, speaking to that point, Jesus actually says, it, well, John actually quotes Jesus in his gospel as saying, I believe it's he who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was mentioned just before that, I think Jesus claims to be the light. Right? Yeah, it's John 8. John 8 and John 9 is where Jesus gets into the, his whole sermon on I am the light of the world. And he, he says that, that he who walks in darkness stumbles because he does not know where he is going. And that's exactly what happens, right? When we're thinking about what, hap what, like, what, what, what are we connecting to here, right? In real life, a great illustration of that is somebody who's wandering around in the dark with no flashlight. And it's crazy how that works, even in your own house. Like, I live here. And you still bump into stuff. You're like, okay, is the door frame here? Where's the doorknob? What am I doing? And you're like walking around like that. Yeah, you're there. I mean, there's so many. Right, we could, I guess, like I said, we could be here for four hours. What, what else is associated with darkness as opposed to light? Fear. Why do, do people walk around L.A. at night? No, they don't because it's scary. You might get jumped. Why? Are people jumping people in the day? No, not in L.A. Not in LA yet. Maybe we're going to get there. People are jumping people in the middle of the day. If you go to Philadelphia, you might get jumped in broad daylight. Right? So you could go all over the place with this. That light is associated with safety and protection and all these other things. God speaks light into existence and it brings order out of the chaos. Let's keep going. Exodus. With Moses, we encounter God in a burning bush that is described using words like bright and blazing. And again, we see light being associated with what? Revelation. The burning bush is the first time in 400 years that God has spoken to man. How does he do it? With a picture, a vision of bright, shining light. Light that's so bright that Moses can barely stand to look at it. He has to follow his face and crawl towards it with his shoes off. What else happens in Exodus? We see Israel being guided through the wilderness by a pillar of fire, and it's described in identical terms as this burning bush. And we might say that Israel was guided by a pillar of divine light. And again, we see that God is guiding his people, and also now we see this concept of light as protection. God is protecting his people with this light. What happens to Moses in, I think, it's chapter 32 or chapter 36 of Exodus? He's up on the mountain. He's receiving the law. He's receiving revelation. God is revealing himself to Moses. And what happens? God, I want to see your glory. I can't let you do that because you'll die. Can I see the backside of your glory? Sure. And what happens to Moses when he sees the backside of God's glory? Just a glimpse of it, right? You think about like, like the, just like the coattail of God's glory. And what happens to his face? It glows, it shines, and it's not just like, oh, wow, my face is glowing, I come off the mountain and I'm good. No, the text of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy suggests to us that Moses' face glowed like that for the rest of his life. God reveals himself to Moses, and now what has happened to Moses? He's absorbed some of that glory. And who was Moses? Moses was many things. But if you go to his 
obituary at the end of Deuteronomy, we see that Moses is counted as a friend of God. Someone who we might say was abiding in God, in union with God. We might even say someone who was in fellowship with God. I'm going to talk about someone who walked in the light and then spent the rest of their life walking as light. Moses paints a pretty clear picture for us of what that is. David and the rest of the psalmist speak regularly of God as light and associate this light with revelation, moral purity, and truth. How is this fulfilled? John was there. What happened? Go up on the mountain. Jesus says, it's just the three of you. Come on up. Bright, shining light. God reveals himself. He speaks from heaven. He says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Light. Revelation. And then what else happens? Moses and Elijah, the law and prophets, are there. And they're gone, showing that Jesus is the full and final fulfillment of the light. So John gets old, and he decides to write his gospel. And how does he write it? With an emphasis on this idea of light. Light entering into the darkness for the, for the full and final time in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All the New Testament authors talk about light. We don't have time to get into all of that. But what does the end look like? The new heavens and the new earth come into existence and we are with him for eternity. What doesn't exist anymore in the new heavens and the new earth? The sun. Why? He is the light. There is no need of lights in the heaven or of the sun or of electricity because everything is light and that light emanates from the Father and from the Son. So we affirm with John that for God to be light is for him to be truth and for him to be purity. And that forms the ethical foundation for what John is going to say in these next verses. The truth and purity of God as expressed in his fundamental and essential lightness is the foundation for the ethical and relational truth that he is writing to share with us. So we've seen the, there goes. We've seen the content of the message that God is light. So let's look at the implications. Verses 6 through 10. John oscillates back and forth between two phrases. What does he say? Let's look at the text. It's the contrast between saying and doing. If we say, verse 6, verse 7, if we walk, something you say, something you do. Verse 8, if we say, and then what does verse 9 say? If we what? If we confess something, we do. 
And then verse 10, if we say, we see that it oscillates back and forth. And this is where we get this idea. Those who walk versus those who talk. And he oscillates back and forth between these to paint a picture of real Christians versus fake Christians. Christians who walk and Christians, in quotes, who just talk. So let's get into it. Talk, the first thing that a professor might say. If we say we have fellowship with him, so we say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm on the team. I'm part of the church. I'm part of it. They probably wouldn't say the church. They'd say, I'm part of the club. I'm one of the homies. They say they have fellowship. They talk like they know God, but they walk in darkness. They have a habitual pattern of sinful thoughts, sinful actions, sinful behaviors. This is the age-old problem of the professor. They like to talk a big talk about their fellowship with God, but their walk, their life, their behavior does not match their words. Let's put it in the colloquial. They don't put their money where their mouth is. What does John mean by fellowship? I was going to read the whole text, but I don't have time. Write this down. John 15, verses 1 through 11. Who here is a bold biblical scholar who wants to share off the top of their head what the first part of John 15 is all about. John 15? Mm-hmm. What's it about? It's one of the famous I am statements. Yeah. We find them the, the vine. The vine. Yeah. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. To have fellowship with God in Christ is to abide in him as a branch abides in the vine. John 15, 1 through 11. You want to understand fellowship with God? Right there. Go there. To have fellowship with God is to abide in him as branches abide in the vine to draw life and rest and joy and peace from the overflowing fountain of Christ's life and rest and joy and peace. And this is what Jesus prayed for at the end of his high priestly prayer, the real Lord's prayer, right? You've been falling prey to false advertising for many years and thinking that the Lord's prayer is in Matthew 6. The real Lord's prayer is in John 17 where the son prays to the father. And what does he pray for? He prays for a lot of things in John 17, which I would argue is the richest chapter in all of scripture. Nothing more rich, nothing more beautiful than John 17. What's the end of his prayer? And this I pray that the glory I have, that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in what? Unity. We might even paraphrase that and say that they might be perfected in fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. That's what the professors say they have. I'm in fellowship with you. I'm in fellowship with God. So let's make some logical propositions here to figure out why this is such a problem for these people who say that they have fellowship with God yet walk in darkness. Statement number one, which we would affirm from verse five, God is light, truth, and purity. And what does not exist in God? Darkness. 
In him is no darkness, no lies, no filth. Therefore, whoever or whatever is in God, abiding in him and fellowship with him, participates in his light, his truth, and his purity, and therefore cannot have any darkness, any lies, or any filth. If God is light, whatever is in him must also be light. If God cannot have any darkness in him, then if you're in him, you can't be marked by darkness. That's the logical progression here. No one, so, so, so here, listen to this. When someone claims to be in God, abiding in him, in fellowship with him, but does not actively participate in God's light, God's truth, God's purity, the actions of these people deny the words that they speak. No one, therefore, can walk in darkness and abide in God. It is a logical impossibility, according to John. And indeed, it is an ontological impossibility, for God's very nature is light. Therefore, nothing can exist in God that is non-light. And therefore, then certainly nothing can exist in him that is darkness. John is saying this. Walking in darkness is incompatible with fellowship with God at the most basic ontological and natural level. God's very nature does not allow darkness near him, let alone in him. Therefore, John can conclude that the person who says they have fellowship with God but walks in the darkness, lies, and does not, I think he would say, tell the truth. What does he say? Does not do the truth, does not practice the truth. False professors commit two sins. They are guilty of lying about their relationship with God. Second, they are guilty of not doing the truth. To do the truth then would be the opposite of doing evil, according to John 3.20, which suggests here that in 1 John, doing the truth means living in the light of the truth and seeking to avoid sin. It is not enough to claim to know God. People must also live in light of that truth, putting it into practice. Here's John Stott. We are right to be suspicious of those who claim a mystical intimacy with God and yet walk in the darkness of error and sin, paying no regard to the self-revelation of an all-holy God. Since God is light, such claims are ludicrous. Religion without morality is an illusion. Sin is always a barrier to fellowship with God. As Paul said, what fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6. So that's talking. The professors, they talk, they say they have fellowship, but their actions belie their words. So then what do you, if you're, if you're serious, if you're a legitimate Christian, how do you walk? Verse 7. If we walk in the light. Some of you may be familiar with a 
hit song from the greatest Christian band to ever walk the face of the planet. DC Talk, they had a song on their 1995 album, Jesus Freak, track number seven, called In the Light. And it was literally just this verse. I'm going to walk in the light as you are in the light. Is that not the goal and the heart of every true Christian that we might walk in the light and leave the darkness behind us? This command is found in both the Old Testament and New Testament. Isaiah 2, come, house of Jacob, and walk in the light of the Lord. Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There's a protective dynamic to walking in the light. As I said, it might be perhaps best illustrated by our tendency as city dwellers to not want to walk at night, but rather walk in the day. Light is associated with safety and protection, while darkness is associated with danger and fear. What's interesting is that John gives us no real definition of walking in the light. He simply just says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of his son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. But John 3, 19 says this. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil, so now we're starting to get to that definition, for whoever does evil hates the light. So if you do evil and you hate the light, why would you walk in something that you hate? You can't. To walk in darkness and not walk in the light is to do evil and what does Jesus say? You don't want to come to the light because you don't want your deeds to be exposed, right? If you're a, maybe a person who suffered a horrific accident and your face is gruesomely, grotesquely disfigured, you don't want to come into the light because you don't want people to see the ugly truth of who you really are. And so the same is true spiritually. Those who love darkness and are in darkness avoid the light at all costs because they don't want the ugliness of their sin to be exposed. But then listen to how Jesus contrasts this. This is John 3.21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. So to walk in the light is to walk in the truth to practice the truth. To walk in the light is to walk obediently in the truth and in the purity that we saw in verse 5. The contrast then is this. One may say that they walk in the light, but what is truly telling is their actions. Do they live in the light? Do they walk according to the truth? If not, we have no reason to believe that these people have true fellowship with God and true fellowship with us. This is where John begins helping us make distinctions. So, two additional realities that qualify walking in the light in verse 7. Number one, we have fellowship with one another. Number two, the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. 
The first reality, we have fellowship with one another. This reality plays off of what John already said in verse 3 regarding his purpose for writing. John's goal is koinonia, fellowship in the Greek. John is therefore providing us with, as I said, a basic test of fellowship. Walking in the light is a sign that one has fellowship with others who are walking in the light. And by implication, also has fellowship with the very God of that light. And this has implications for the way that we do church discipline. If someone makes a habit of walking in the darkness rather than in the light, we can deduce reasonably that we do not have true Christian fellowship with such a person because they do not walk in the light and do not therefore have fellowship with God. The result, from a church perspective, is that such people are to be removed from the visible assembly of God. Number two, right? If you walk in the light, you have fellowship with, all, with the others who walk in the light. And number two, the blood of Christ cleanses us. Second qualifier, and it's important for us to understand this. He says that if we walk in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. Now, some people have interpreted this phrase causally. What do I mean by that? They've interpreted this as walking in the light causes you to be cleansed from your sin. And this would make our justification then to be caused by our own works, and we deny such a teaching. Rather, what John is doing, and if you decide you want to parse out the Greek here, you can figure it out, you can see it for yourself. What John is doing here, he's demonstrating to us that these three truths, walking in the light, having fellowship with one another and being cleansed from sin are three co-mutual, co-existent truths. And we can state this in a nice if-then logical relationship. If statement A, you walk in the light, is true, then statements B and C, you have fellowship, you are cleansed, are also true. If one of the three is true, the other two are true. And you can do it in any order you want. If you are cleansed, you have fellowship and you do walk. If you have fellowship, you do walk and you are cleansed. A quick word on this idea of cleansing. We'll look at it again in a moment. It's a Greek word, kataros, which means pure. John is telling us is if we have fellowship with and abide in the light of God, our sins are perpetually being purified and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. In other words, Christ's sacrifice is eternal, absolute, and utterly efficacious for his people. In other words, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the shedding of his blood, which cleanses us from sin, does so eternally. We deny what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that Christ shed his blood, he died, he offered this sacrifice, and then that sacrifice is supplemented by our good works in order to retain our justification into eternity. We deny that. What John is telling us here is that eternally, perpetually, what does the author of Hebrews say? Hebrews 9, once and for all, the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. means a second thing, right? That, that's what we might call positional purity, right? It purified us once and for all. At the, the moment of the cross, the moment of the shedding of blood for all of his people, 
Christ purifies sins. But what is Christ also doing right now on our behalf? He's mediating on our behalf. And that blood continues to plead for us before the throne of grace. That's his first ministry now. His second ministry now is through the Holy Spirit, which is also continually cleansing us from what some have called the, the stain of sin, right? That we are continually and progressively becoming more pure and more holy and more clean as we approach heaven. The three realities that hang upon each other in mutual dependence. And these three likewise differentiate the walkers from the talkers. The talkers say they know God. They say they have forgiveness. They say they have fellowship. While the walkers, by their life, demonstrate outwardly the inward truth that they know God. They have forgiveness. They have fellowship. The next thing that the talkers like to talk about, verse 8, they say, if we say that we have no sin, This is a spiral for John. He's going deeper and deeper and deeper into the waters of darkness. First contrast is more practical, but this second one is theological. John is addressing the notion that one can be sinless in their very nature. In other words, born without an inherent sin nature. How can John know this for sure, that it is a false statement? Right? What does he say? If we say that we have no sin, what are you doing? What does the text say? You're lying. You're You're deceiving yourself. And what else? The truth truth is is not in you. If you say that you have no sin, if you say somehow I was born without a sin nature, you're self-deceived. The truth does not exist in you. And where could John get such an idea? Let's try the New Testament first. Romans 5, 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. Psalm 51, 5. You can't get any plainer than this. When someone says, well, I don't think I was born with a sin nature. Just say, well, David, the man after God's own heart, said this. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. John leans on Paul and on David to prove that all of us have sin. Because of Adam, it is hardwired into us, passed on genetically from person to person throughout all of history. And only one person ever in all the history of mankind has ever been born without that hardwiring. And that's because biologically he was not conceived of his earthly father, but conceived of the Holy Spirit. On a side note, you want to know why the virgin birth is important? That very reason. Jesus does not share the Adamic original sin nature that the rest of us share. John therefore anticipates false teaching that has plagued the church for 2,000 years. Later on, this teaching would become known as Pelagianism. Pelagianism after Pelagius, the guy who taught it in the 4th century. We've discussed it before. Pelagianism teaches that all human beings are born morally neutral with no propensity to good or to evil. Their own will, their own surroundings, their own circumstances determine whether they will be a morally good or morally evil 
person. This teaching was roundly condemned by someone you might be familiar with, Augustine of Hippo, who wrote extensively on the biblical basis for original sin, the human need for divine grace and salvation, and the glory of redemption in Christ. Now, we might not be super familiar with a guy like Pelagius today. He's a guy that existed three in the, in the 300s A.D., 1,700 years ago, we might be more familiar today with the teaching of someone named Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, known as the father of modern psychology. And I would argue, in the last 100 years, few people have done more damage to the church than Sigmund Freud. He, too, taught that human beings are born morally neutral. And that our circumstances and surroundings shape us into who we are and who we become morally. He took it a step further and essentially removed all responsibility for immoral or evil actions from the person who perpetrated them. And instead directed his students and his clients at his psychology practice to cast blame for their evil actions on their parents, their teachers, their circumstances or events that happened to them when they were kids. This teaching was then baptized, as it were. And introduced into the church through what has become known by its supporters as integrative counseling. By its detractors, of whom I am one, we would call it Christianized psychology. And what this type of teaching attempts to do is sidestep the fundamental reality that all people are born sinners, haters of God, and in darkness. It removes the need for grace and for forgiveness and replaces it instead with a need for new circumstances, new events, new surroundings, and new friends to make you feel better. John can't be more clear. This is a satanic deception. A denial of original sin is self-deception and indicates that the truth does not reside in you. On the other side, then, we must affirm original sin as Christians. Lord's Day 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us this. Question 7, whence then proceeds the depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Question eight, are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except that we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Ron. Okay, hi. Just um, looking at verse seven, uh, we can be walking in darkness and deceiving ourselves with the other verses. But in verse seven it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we are walking in the light, um, that's not, of course, that's not of ourselves. Because I, I look at uh, scriptures over here in Philippians, it says, uh, For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see, so God, if we are walking in the light, that has to be God. Not us doing it, but mm-hmm. God doing it. And then over in... Uh, Ephesians, it says, um, for we are his workmanship, created mm-hmm. in Christ Jesus, for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mm-hmm. So if we are walking in the light, it's not us doing it. It, it is the, if we are following the Spirit and, and, you know, walking in the Spirit, then God is the one who is leading us, and the fellowship and the cleansing are, are just going to automatically follow 
from, from the fact that it is God that's working in us and these other things just follow. The fellowship is not going to be a, it, it's going to just yeah. be a natural outcome of that. Something external must happen to us in order for these realities to become present in our lives. And we'll see that in just a minute when we get to verse 9. A couple of, actually, you know what, I'm going to, I'll, I'll uh, give these to you guys in an email afterwards, some practical reasons why we should affirm original sin. We can talk about that later. So i got a couple more points to get through. The second, the third thing that the talkers talk about, I'm doing this out of order because I really want to hit the home run at the very end. The second thing that they talk about, not only do they talk about having a sinless nature, they say we don't have sin. And then what else do they say in verse 10? If we say that we have not sinned, so we understand sin biblically in two ways. Sin, we understand it as inherited. That's what we call original sin. The sin, that, the sin nature that we are born in, right? And sin, my mother conceived me. But we also talk about active sin, sin the, the, the sins that we actually actively commit, right? Are, are active breaches of the Ten Commandments. We might call them sins of commission, the things that we, the sins that we do, and then sins of omission, where we fail to do something that we ought to do. And so John affirms both original sin and active sin. John is affirming this truth against those who would say they're basically a good person. Like Ray Comfort in a classic way of the master evangelism video, John is quickly and simply proving to his readers that all have sinned in darkness and fallen short of the light of God. So then what is this final item that those who walk in the light do? Verse 9. If we say, if we say, if we say, if we walk in the light, and then verse 9 if we do what? Confess. We confess our sins. John contrasts this first statement saying that we have no sin and that we do not sin with confessing your sin. And this, will, this is what really brings this whole passage together. Now we said in verse 7 that walking in the light does not cause our cleansing. And that same sentiment holds here, right? Our confession does not cause our forgiveness and our cleansing. But these things all hold together, right? If we are confessing, we are forgiven, we are cleansed. If we are forgiven, that means we've confessed. So what John is telling us is that a principal part of walking in the light is a habit of confessing Sin, And we might define confession in this context as bringing our sin out of the darkness and into the light where Christ can purge it and we can be forgiven and cleansed. And that's why it's important not only to confess your sins to God, but confess them to one another. Bring these things out into the light. Because what cannot exist in the light? Darkness and the deeds of darkness. I have another huge block quote from John Stott that I'm going to have to skip over. I'll send the notes out in the email. I'll summarize this quote here. The proper Christian attitude is not to deny sin, but to 
admit it and then to receive the forgiveness which God has made possible and promises to us. God is a faithful covenant God. He is true to his word and faithful to his covenant which says I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Therefore, it is not difficult to see why God is described here to be faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. It's interesting. God is faithful to his covenant, but he's also righteous. Righteous in some translations might read just. God is faithful to his covenant to forgive sins, but is likewise also just and cannot allow sin to go unpunished. How can we reconcile these two truths in our minds? This is what we called the divine dilemma. How can God both be just and also forgive sins? The cross of Jesus Christ is in fact the only moral ground upon which God can forgive sin at all. So we may say that in forgiving our sins and cleansing us from them, God displays faithfulness to his covenant because of the word which initiated it and justice because of the deed which ratified it. More simply, he is faithful to forgive because he has promised to do so and just because Christ died for our sins. God's faithful and just forgiveness is therefore the bridge between a God who is pure light and humans who are born in darkness. That's the quandary of John's ethics, is that God is light, we are not. How can the two come together? Only one way. The cross of Jesus Christ. The heart of John's ethics is the gospel. And the gospel for John here is this. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We have darkness within us and do the deeds of darkness. How then can people who have darkness and live in darkness be in fellowship with God who is pure, absolute light and with whom no darkness can dwell? How is this possible? How is it possible to walk in the light by finding forgiveness and cleansing at the cross of Christ where God's faithful forgiveness and righteous wrath meet together as the light of God incarnate bows his head? If I might be so bold as to appropriate an ancient hymn, a modern musical, and a timeless allegory at the cross, at the cross, at last I see the light and the burden of my sin is lifted, rolling away into an empty grave, never to be seen again. Plato said that the highest end of man was to exit the cave and enter into the light. What Plato missed is exactly how this happens. Instead of men exiting the cave and finding the light, the true light came into the cave and enlightens everyone. And he said this, 
I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John's ethics are gospel ethics. It is an ethic that acknowledges God as light, truth, and purity and the only standard for moral excellence. It is an ethic that acknowledges our sinfulness, both in our natures and in our actions. And most importantly, it is an ethic that is practical and attainable for all people because by the cleansing power of Christ's blood, the darkness can be purged, the light can enter in, and we can have fellowship with God himself. Light with light according to the light of Christ that is shown in our hearts. That is the foundation for John's ethics. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are light. We praise you. May we bask in your light even now. May we walk in the light as you are in the light. We trust the cleansing, forgiving power of the blood of Christ. We thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us according to Christ's work. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.